Will you please turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2. And these brothers have some Bibles. They're going to make their way to the back. And as they do, if you need a Bible, just get their attention. They'll get you one of those that is marked in the book of 1 Peter. And we'll be looking at a number of passages in that book of the Bible in our message today. I want to say a public thanks to those who labor and use their gifts in the music ministry. We've had a good time of praise of the Lord already. Now we want to praise the Lord uh, through looking at His Word. Everything we do in this hour is a part of our worship. The music, the giving, the praying, and then the preaching of God's Word as well. So let's worship the Lord as we look at His Word together. You know, one of the sometimes comical aspects of my position as pastor in the church is that people don't always know what to call me. I experienced that several times in our building construction as it was taking place, and I would deal with some of the contractors uh, from week to week. And they would, when they realized uh, that they were in a church, and then when they were talking to me, one of the leaders of the church, some would kind of get wide-eyed and freeze up a bit. Others might fumble around to grab the cigarette out of their mouth and put it out, although I was, I was fine. And still others might apologize for the words they used earlier when the hammer hit their thumb. Aaron Kinder, you're forgiven. <laughs> and then I'd see it rear its head again when they had to ask me something about the project, and I didn't know what name or title to use. And so they would sometimes come up and say, um, sir, father, and I'd say, are you, are you a priest, reverend, preacher? And I would say, you can just call me Ken. And often they'd be somewhat surprised and taken aback, and for some it seemed a little unsettling, as if calling a religious guy by his first name was somehow inappropriate. Now, I really appreciate their desire to be respectful, so I'm not making fun of those contractors, those men. But it does point out a problem that we need to overcome if each of us is going to glean the most we can from God's Word, and that's this. We cannot put men and women that God used and profiled in the Bible on a pedestal, high above us, never to be ascended by us, because the Bible does not present its characters that way. Instead, as we have seen in this series, Portraits of Grace, they are presented as ordinary men and women who God used to do extraordinary things for Him. And so as we now continue that series, we're going to continue today the examination that we began two weeks ago, looking at the life of God's servant, Peter. We had one week off last week due to Mother's Day. So as we continue looking at this profile of Peter, it's important that you understand that Peter was like all of us. And we saw then that some of what he was like and what he became, hear this friends, was not due to his extraordinary abilities, but we saw that it was due to God's extravagant grace given to this very ordinary man. Peter was not a priest, much less a pope. But rather, he was a a regular guy whose growth in grace is a picture of what we should aspire to. Now, how do I know this? How do I know that the portrait that God gives us in his word of Peter is something that he's designed for us to aspire to? 
How do I know that what we see in Peter, God desires to instill in us? After all, as we saw two weeks ago, Peter was indeed a key leader in the early church, so why shouldn't we assume that what God did with him was only because of his unique position? Well, it's because in Peter we have something that we don't have with most of the other characters that we've profiled in this series. We have in Peter a description of what he was like at the first moments that he made contact with the Lord Jesus Christ. And then after that, we have a couple of letters in your New Testament that Peter wrote that tell us how it was that Peter progressed. And in those letters, we have Peter instructing people like us to be like that. In other words, the things he learned from Jesus himself. He then writes later to tell regular Christians like us that we are to aspire to have those same character qualities that the Lord Jesus instilled in him. Jesus' encounter with Peter happened in about 30 A.D. And long about the early to mid-60s A.D., Peter wrote 1 Peter and 2 Peter. And so what we're going to be doing today is we're going to be looking at episodes in the life of Peter as Jesus interacted with him, and then we're going to look at what Peter had become and what he instructed some three decades later, to ordinary Christians like us. In those letters of First and Second Peter, he's instructing others, not only clergymen, not people in a separate religious category from us, he's instructing normal, everyday, ordinary followers of Jesus in what it means to be like Jesus. And that's because, in fact, in Peter, we see an ordinary fisherman whom Jesus called and molded and matured to be like him. He was one who had been with Christ and then had become like Christ. But Peter is also one who is just like you and me. And so this morning, we're going to see some of those experiences in his interaction with Jesus, and then we're going to look at those letters that he wrote later. Let's ask God then to help us as we do. Father, thank you for this time of worship that we've been able to have already. We thank you now that we can worship you by looking into your word. Help us, Lord, to do justice to this aspect of our worship. Help us to have open minds. Help us to have uh, ready hearts. And help us, Lord, to be desirous of change in our own lives, not in the lives of others, but in our lives first, so that we can put into practice the things that you taught your servant Peter. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I've been helped in this uh, series, and in particular, these profiles of Peter by two books in particular that I want to give credit to. One is a classic book by A.B. Bruce. It's called The Training of the Twelve. And then another helpful little book by John MacArthur called Twelve Extraordinary Men. And in MacArthur's book, he lists several character traits that Jesus fashioned in Peter. And I say in your outline, if you'll take a look at that, we have it inserted in your program. That in Peter, we see that Christ-like character demonstrates six things. The first of those is this, deference to those who are over us. Christ-like character demonstrates deference to those over us. Now, where do we we see this in the life of Peter? Where was it that, that Jesus taught that to Peter, and in turn, Peter writes in his first letter that we should learn that lesson as well? Well, the episode in particular where Jesus taught that to Peter 
is found in Matthew 17. You don't need to turn there, but we'll have some of the passages on the, the screen for you. But the circumstance was this. Matthew 17, 24 says, The collectors of the two drachma temple tax came. Now, what is, what is that? What is this temple tax? And what are the two drachma that you are to require to give in order to pay this temple tax? Well, it goes all the way back to the first part of your Bible, and in fact, the second book in the first part of your Bible, Exodus, where the Bible says this, The Lord said to Moses, Each one, 20 years old or more, is to give a half shekel. This half shekel is an offering to the Lord. Use it for the service of the tent of meeting. So in Matthew 17, when it says two drachma tax for the temple, it's the equivalent of this half shekel tax for the tent of meeting. That's why it's called the temple tax. So the New Testament currency is the drachma, two drachma is equivalent to this half shekel that the Old Testament law, first part of your Bible, said was to be given. And so you have the tax collectors coming to collect this tax for support of the temple. It's not the government tax that the Romans would collect. It was a tax that all adult Jews were required by the Old Testament law to pay. And in this scene in Matthew 17, Jesus' detractors want to know whether or not Jesus pays this temple tax. And so they say, the collectors of the two drachma temple tax came, and they came to Peter, and they asked, doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Yes, he does, Peter replied. Now notice, Peter answers quickly and confidently. But inside, Peter's apparently a little bit, uh, a, little, a little unsure and somewhat troubled. It appears he's thinking to himself, Jesus is God the Son. Does he really have to pay this tax? I mean, they're asking me if he obeys the Old Testament law. Well, yeah, of course he does, but wait a minute. <laughs> he's God the Son. Does he, does he really have to do this? In those days, if one was the son of an earthly king, he didn't have to pay tax like everybody else, so why should the king of kings do so? And Jesus knows that Peter is thinking this. And so he talks before Peter can say anything. And so the passage goes on. When Peter came into the house, Jesus was the first to speak. What do you think, Simon? He asked. Don't you love it? (laughs) I know what you're thinking. What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes? From their own children or from others? From others, Peter answered. Then the children are exempt, Jesus said to him. And if you're Peter, you're standing there and you're thinking, yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. You're the king and I'm your child. We don't owe these guys anything. But then Jesus teaches Peter an extremely important point. Because in the next verse, he says this. But so that we may not cause offense, go to the lake, throw out your line, take the first fish you catch, open its mouth, and you'll find a four drachma coin. Take it and give it to them for my tax and yours. Now that's weird. I mean, why not just produce the coin? whether from your pocket or, since it's Jesus, out of thin air. But go to a fish and get the coin? Why is that? Friends, Jesus is demonstrating to Peter 
his sovereign authority over nature. He, God over nature, has appointed a fish that has swallowed a coin, a coin that's just the right amount to pay the tax for both of them. God has appointed, God has ordained this fish to be at the right place at the right time. Or the wrong place at the wrong time from the perspective of the fish. What he's doing is he is underscoring to Peter who he is. Peter, I'm the God of the universe. I'm the God who made the fish and I can control it as I see fit. And as if Jesus has that kind of authority, then surely he's not required to pay this tax, right? And yet, he says, so that we do not cause this offense, pay the tax for you and for me. Peter learned that lesson. He learned that lesson in a profound way. And we know that by what he wrote in the first letter he wrote to some Christians over 30 years later. That first letter I've asked you to open to. And if you'll take a look at chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. This is Peter now writing these three decades later. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people. But do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. Here's Peter now, having learned that profound lesson from the Lord Jesus himself, writing these 30 years later. And he's saying, in effect, you, Christian, are free. You are indeed a citizen of heaven, but make yourself a servant precisely because you are the Lord's servant. Make yourself a servant of all people because you are the Lord's servant. Do it for the Lord's sake, he says. That's hard, a hard lesson to learn, isn't it? It's a hard lesson to learn for all of us who are by nature, in our sin, rebellious. It's especially so if you're somebody who's not a naturally compliant personality, which most of us are not. And leaders who are born with the kinds of traits we saw two weeks ago that Peter has, that God had given him naturally, they almost never are compliant people. And Peter certainly was not. But friends, he had to learn this in order to grow in Christ-likeness. He had to learn a willingness to submit. I've called it deference, but you could put in the word submission. Submission to those over us. And the word submit means to place yourself under. Peter had to learn to place himself under the authority, but the Bible also teaches that we place ourselves under the needs of others for a larger purpose. Submission may seem strange for one in charge, like Peter. Peter was indeed the leader of the early apostolic band. So it may seem strange for Jesus to be teaching deference and submission to him. But hear this, if you can't follow, you should not lead. There are too many people, because they have their own selfish agenda, desire to lead, and they desire to be where the leaders are, but they have not developed the Christ-like character 
that defers to the needs of others and then uses the authority that God ascribes to them for the benefit of others. Now, this need for us to learn to submit, to place ourselves under, could be applied in a host of ways, friends. It could be applied in the political realm. We just read in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13 through 18, that Peter says there, submit yourselves to earthly authorities. In this political season, we have a midterm election coming up later this year. In two years, yet another presidential election. It's going to be tempting for many of us to talk about our rebellion against the government and to talk in ways that are disrespectful of the government. Let me just say to you, dear Tea Party friend, if we have Tea Party friends here, I don't, but really, those who have said that, you know, a Tea Party is what we need, you remember what the Tea Party was, an act of rebellion against the government. Now, you need to think, we need to think long and hard about advocating open rebellion against the government in light of what Scripture says. That's a hard lesson for us to learn, though, isn't it? It was a hard lesson for Peter to learn, but Jesus taught it to him because he absolutely had to know it, not only to be a leader, but for him to be a Christ-like follower. And that is why Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 2, as we've read, to regular Christians, not necessarily those who are leaders, you too need to learn this submission. It needs to be learned at home. The Bible speaks of submitting, Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 21. It says, submit yourselves to one another. Speaking of everyone in the household, submit yourselves to one another. Husbands submit themselves, place themselves under the needs of their spouse and their children. And so even though we men have been placed in a position of leadership, God did not assign that to us for us to use it selfishly and for our own ends. Rather, we place ourselves under the needs of those that he has called us to lead. And then he says in the next verse, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. Wives are to willingly place themselves under the loving leadership of their husbands. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right, he says just a few verses later. It needs to be applied in the home. It needs to be applied in the workplace. Because in Ephesians chapter 5, or excuse me, Ephesians 6 and verse 5, Paul, who wrote that, says that slaves, that day that was an employment arrangement, You're to submit yourselves, place yourselves under those who are your your masters. It's to be learned at school. In every realm in which you have an authority, superior, inferior relationship, this is to be learned, and it's a hard lesson for us to learn. But friends, it is part of discipleship. Christ-like character demonstrates deference to those who are over us. Here's a second thing that it demonstrates. Restraint toward those opposed to us. Christ-like character demonstrates deference or submission to those who are over us, but also restraint toward those who are opposed to us. You remember that Peter is the guy who pulled out a sword to take off the head of a fellow who came to arrest Jesus the night before he was crucified? Peter did this in an act of, of, of la- a complete lack of self-control. There are, in all probability, well over a hundred guards coming to arrest Jesus. And the guy who's in front, this unfortunate guy that the Bible tells us his name is Malchus, Peter pulls out a sword and cuts off his ear, 
But he was undoubtedly going for his, his neck, and this guy got out of the way, and he only got his ear. But impetuous Peter takes action, a lack of restraint. And throughout Peter's career and Jesus' mentoring of Peter, Jesus was constantly having to rein Peter in as he was impulsive, and he'd do whatever came to mind without thinking and without spiritual restraint. But Peter had the spirit of the living God in him, as all children of God do. And as a result of that, Peter developed in his life the evidence of that possession of God the Holy Spirit, which the Bible calls the fruit of the Spirit. Many of you will remember what that fruit of the Spirit is. The Bible says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and notice this, self-control. Peter had to learn this restraint, this this self-control. Now, in my experience, and the Word of God backs this up, the most common way we exhibit a lack of the Spirit's control is in the way we talk. How quickly we talk, what we talk about, about whom we talk. The most common way we exhibit a lack of the Spirit's control is with our tongues. You'll remember that Peter would often speak before he engaged his mind. He would sometimes speak in harmful ways that Jesus had to correct. The book of James in your Bible warns, dear friend, dear friend, the Word of God warns over and over again. The first 12 verses of the third chapter of the book of James warn about the danger of the tongue. And yet somehow in our arrogance, we believe that we are exempt And what we say and what we say about other people can't be that bad. We're going to look at a passage in James in just a moment. But I want to tell you that I expect in about a month that I'll be sending an email to all y'all that are on our email list and inviting you to a message that I'll be preaching on the tongue. The Word of God warns that the tongue is a fire that can destroy And I'm convinced that too many of us do not take it seriously. Because after all, it's me doing the talking. How bad can it be? But the Bible says in James 3, 9, With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. When it says curse, it doesn't mean you swear when you're talking about someone. But rather you defame, you, you slander, And with the same tongue that you're singing praises to Jesus on the Lord's Day, then Monday through Saturday, talking about brothers and sisters in a slanderous way, in an unedifying way, this lack of the Spirit's control of our tongues can most often be seen with those with whom we are at odds. Lack of control of my tongue, and now I'm at odds with someone, and they're going to hear it. And other people are going to hear about them. Peter learned this lesson. Because he says in chapter 2, notice verse 21. Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Now, I'm going to move on. I'm going to get off of this because I said I think i got a sermon brewing in a month or so. 
But you know, you, there's all kinds of ways for us to justify this. You know, I'm just somebody who speaks my mind. I just, I just speak my mind. I'm opinionated. You know what? If you say that about yourself and you have other people saying so-and-so is just opinionated, let me, let me tell you, dear friend, you need to take a hard look at how you use your tongue. The truth is, everyone is not entitled to your opinion. Many of the people who say they're just speaking their mind, I mean, after they talk, I'm thinking if they were really speaking their mind, they wouldn't say anything because there ain't nothing there. Okay. Christ-like character demonstrates deference to those who are over us, restraint, particularly to those opposed to us. And then thirdly, it demonstrates love for those around us. Love for those around us. Peter saw this taught by Jesus and modeled by Jesus. Jesus said in Mark chapter 9, He called the twelve and said, Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and must be the servant of all. And then the night before Jesus died, Jesus gave a grand demonstration of what this being a servant of others looks like. The Bible tells us in John chapter 13 that when they had gathered for this final meal that we call the, the Last Supper, that they had failed to make preparation for something that was just went with hospitality in that day. If you invited someone over for dinner, if you had a dinner with guests, uh, whoever was the host needed to make provision for the feet of those guests to be washed. The roads were muddy or dusty if it hadn't rained, but nevertheless, the feet and the, the, the sandals needed to, be, needed to be cleaned as they entered the room. But nobody had made provision for that in this final meal. They had forgotten all about it. And so Jesus does this in John 13. Jesus got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Friends, it's mind-boggling to consider that this is the God of the universe who is stooping to wash the feet of his first followers. But he is seeking to demonstrate to them the absolute need for love for all of those around them. And they are so far from this. Luke, that's John chapter 13, but Luke tells us that around the same time that Jesus is doing this, here's what Luke says, a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be greatest. And it's in that context that the Lord Jesus takes this towel and this basin and begins to clean their feet. Then, after giving them this grand demonstration of humble, selfless love for others, Jesus says famously, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Now, did Peter learn that lesson? Take a look at chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, and he writes to regular disciples, regular followers, regular Christians like us, above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Now, do you all remember this working definition of love that I've given you in the past? 
It's this, love is doing what is in the best interest of another. Love is doing what is in the best interest of another. So, contrary to our culture, love is not primarily a feeling. It involves that. It's not less than feeling, but it's not primarily a feeling. Love is doing. God so loved the world that He gave, that He did something. Love is doing what is in the best interest of another. And when Peter then says in chapter 4 and verse 8, love each other deeply, love covers over a multitude of sins, hear this, it doesn't mean that love overlooks sin. But rather, because we love, we are motivated to do what's in the best interest, even of the one who sins. And that love often motivates us, requires us to lovingly confront the sin. James uses that same phrase, covering over a multitude of sins, and he uses it in James chapter 5. Notice what it says. My brothers and sisters, if any one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death. And notice, cover over a multitude of sins. Yes, love covers over a multitude of sins, but very often the way that love covers over a multitude of sins is by doing what's in the best interest of one who has wandered from the truth and bringing them back. In order for us to have the willingness to do that, we must be people who love people more than we need them. You say, I could never do that. I could never go to somebody and say, hey, look, we've got to talk about what you're doing. I could never do that because I fear that I will lose their friendship. And if you fear that more than obeying God to do what James 5.19 says, you need those people more than you love them. And Peter is being called and we are being called. And he says in chapter 4 and verse 8, love one another above all. Love each other deeply. Christ-like character demonstrates deference to those over us, restraint toward those who are opposed to us, love for those around us, and notice, concern for those who are like us. Concern for those like us. Do you remember the episode, if you were with us two weeks ago, where Jesus says to, to Peter in Luke 22, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. Satan has asked to sift you as as wheat. Now, Satan has asked permission, a la what Satan had to do back in the book of Job. In the book of Job, Satan presented himself to God, and he asked asked permission for what he would do to, to Job. Satan has apparently asked the same kind of thing regarding Peter. He desires to sift you as wheat. And in those days, wheat and chaff were separated by throwing in the air, and the chaff would be blown away by the wind. And what this is saying then is that, that Satan has, has asked permission in order to blow you away like the wind. But then the full passage says this, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that is Peter, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, you do this, strengthen your brothers. Now, do you see what's happening here? Jesus is telling him, Peter, this is going to happen to you. You're going to fail. And I've given permission for that to happen. But you are going to come back. You are going to come back. And when you come back, I want you to learn the lesson in that failure. And as a result, I want you to strengthen your brothers. Did Peter do that? Chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. 
He knows what it's like firsthand. And he says then to those to whom he writes in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8, Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. I call this concern for those who are like you. The reason I call it that is because Peter understood. He had compassion for people who had the same kinds of vulnerabilities and, and, and struggles that he had. He developed a particular compassion for those who were hurting and struggling because he knew firsthand what it was like. It had happened to him. So Jesus followers, as we mature in him, as we become like him, we develop this concern for people who, like us, struggle and hurt and sin. When we go through difficulty, of whatever type, it's God's intention for us to be used in order to help others with that struggle. Did you know that? So in everything you've got going in your life, I don't know all of God's purposes, but God has told me in His Word, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, 2 Corinthians 1, 3 and 4, that God comforts us in all our troubles so that we might comfort those in any trouble with the comfort that we ourselves have received from God. Christ-like character, which is the aim of our discipleship, maturing in Him, demonstrates deference to those over us, restraint to those opposed to us, love to those around us, concern for those like us. Fifth in your outline, it demonstrates courage for those who need us. Courage for those who need us. And here, I'm not talking about, and Peter did not develop, the impetuous kind of courage that acts first and thinks later. That was the kind of so-called courage that Peter had demonstrated so many times before. But now, he has developed, as he has matured, a mature, settled, thoughtful courage that counted the cost, but even having counted the cost and knowing the cost, was willing to do what was needed on behalf of others. So this is not the courage of your convictions, we sometimes say that, or standing up for what you believe for you. It's not the courage of your convictions for you because nobody's going to have me take a back seat or treat me like a doormat, and so I'm going to stand up for what I believe for me. That's not what God talks about. Rather, it's being willing here to take the bullet for someone else. And Jesus had told Peter, you're going to take, in effect, metaphorically, the bullet for someone else. He didn't die by the bullet. He died by, tradition tells us, being crucified upside down. And Jesus predicted that for Peter. He told him what the cost was going to be. In John chapter 21, he said to Peter, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. Peter had been told the cost. The cost was going to be his very life. And Jesus says, now follow me. Peter followed him. 
Peter learned that lesson, and he ultimately gave his life. And in between, he showed the kind of courage that puts it on the line, not for himself, but for others. In Acts chapter 4, the Bible tells us that the apostles were told, you are not to preach in Jesus' name. Peter stands up with great courage. This is the right kind of courage of your conviction, standing up for what you believe. But it's for God's sake. It's for Christ's sake. It's for others' sake. And famously in Acts chapter 5 and verse 29, he says, we must obey God rather than men. You see, friends, Jesus said this in John chapter 15. Whitney Houston said, that great theologian, you know, the greatest love of all is learning to what? Love yourself. But Jesus said this, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down his life for one's friends. I'll go with Jesus on that. That's the greatest love of all. And those who are maturing in their discipleship develop a courage, not for themselves, but for those who need us. And then lastly, those who are being molded by Jesus, being matured by Jesus into Christ-like character, develop a humility toward ourselves, a humility toward ourselves. Peter didn't start out with that, that's for sure. Peter was a very self-assured man. He was confident that he could take on any challenge and that he would not fail, and we all know that he failed miserably. The Bible tells us in Matthew 26, Jesus told them, this very night you will all fall away on account of me. But notice, Peter, first one to talk and the first one to be wrong, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. And Luke tells us that Peter added this, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. But then he had that miserable failure that Jesus predicted. Again, Peter's wrong and Jesus is right. And he learned that lesson and it humbled this man. And in chapter 5, beginning in verse 5, 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 5, he then wrote to regular Christians, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. In verse 3 of that same chapter, if you just look back a few verses, he told leaders, do not act like lords over those entrusted to you, but be examples to the flock. Peter, like all disciples, had to learn this, this humility. Humility means, friends, that we don't get defensive then when shown our failures. Let me ask you, when you're shown your failures, when you're confronted with what's really going on with you, what do you do? How do you react? Pride says, what, who are you? Yeah, right, I'm not perfect. We all fail, we all sin, and you get defensive about it, right? And by the way, what about you? I've got a list for you too. But humility says, yes, Lord, this is true about me. Thank you, Lord, for teaching me and showing me and giving me my reflection in in the mirror so I can see what I am so that I can be transformed into the image of Jesus. Humility doesn't get defensive. It gets right. It gets right with the Lord. Humility is an attitude that leads to the actions that I've listed in the first five. And that's why I saved it for last. 
Humility is the attitude that leads to the actions of deference and restraint and love and compassion and even courage. Because in that courage for others, I know that it's not my own strength that allows me to do this. But rather, in humility, I understand it is only by God's strength and God's grace that I can do this. Humility is the attitude that undergirds all of them. So hear this now. If in that list of five things prior to humility, if as I go through that, if you're trying to apply it to yourself, and I hope you are, if you're saying to yourself, you know, I don't have that one. (laughs) I don't have that one either. Um, Matter of fact, I don't have all five. If you don't have one or more of those character qualities showing up in your actions, do you know what's at root, dear friends? A lack of humility. You start with humility. The humility to say, I don't have that. I don't do that. I don't act that way. And that humility then is the beginning of making reform, making changes in our thoughts, in our words, and in our actions. Through the prophet Isaiah, the Lord said this, These are the ones I look on with favor, those who are humble and contrite in spirit, and who tremble at my word. You know, friends, it ought to be an absolute contradiction in terms to speak of an arrogant Christian. What do we have, the Apostle Paul asked rhetorically, what do we have that we did not receive from God by His grace? And so in humility, we begin to see, our, we begin to see ourselves as we truly are. And God begins to make the changes that are necessitated. In all of this, Peter was able to mature into all of this because he had one thing above all. He was secure in his relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. A relationship forged 30 years earlier. And he saw the Lord Jesus in action and mentoring him. And by God's grace, over those 30 years, he learned those lessons. And now he's writing 1 Peter to instruct people like you and me that that's what it means to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus. But all of that was because he was absolutely secure in his relationship with Jesus. And so he could lay it on the line. He could defer to those who were over him. He didn't have to have the last word with those who opposed him. He could love those who are around him. He could show compassion and concern with people who were like him. And all of that was based upon the fact that he had this humility that the Lord Jesus had developed in him. Take a look at the first chapter of 1 Peter, and we'll be done. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3. Everything we just saw him say in chapters 2 and 4 and 5 in this five-chapter letter is all based on this. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. In all of this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold which perishes even though refined by fire may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed.
Dear friend, dear professing follower of Jesus, is that what you want? The praise, the glory, and the honor of Jesus. The way that's obtained is by you maturing into Christ's likeness, and Peter gives us a profile of what that looks like. I say in your take-home truth in your outline, the Lord uses our experiences to do this, to expose our character, and then to make it, to remake it like him. He uses our experiences like he did with Peter in order to expose what Peter was and where Peter was deficient and where you're deficient and where I'm deficient. But he has a good and godly purpose in that, to make our character like his. And it all begins with that relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to pray in just a moment. And those of you who have a relationship with the Lord Jesus, I encourage you to do what I'm going to do. I'm going to thank God for the example of Peter, where he showed Peter what Peter was really like. And I want to thank God for showing me what I'm really like. And you, instead of getting defensive, should say, Lord, thank you for showing me my shortcomings, my sin. And Lord, transform me. I want to be your disciple. And those of you who came into this room and you did not have a relationship with the Lord Jesus, that relationship can begin for you right now in this sacred moment. Now, how does that happen? This is what you do. You realize that you're a sinner. You recognize that Jesus is the answer to your sin. He died and paid the penalty for your sin, all of it, past, present, and future. You repent of your sin. Lord, I'm going to no longer go my own way. I'm going to turn and follow you. And you receive Jesus Christ into your life. You do that when we bow. There's no magical incantation, no particular words you have to say. From your heart to God, you acknowledge, Lord, I'm a sinner. I believe Jesus Christ is the Savior. And I ask him to forgive me of my sin. And I give you my life. I want to follow you as my Lord and Master. And he begins that reclamation project in you just like he did in Peter. And just like he's doing in us. Let's bow together. Father, again, we thank you for the opportunity to be here, to open your word, and to learn from it. We thank you for the example of your servant, Peter. We thank you for the genuineness with which he is presented in your word. Lord, you have shown him warts and all, sin and all. And yet, Lord, in him, over three decades, we're able to see a profile of one who grew in you and became Christ-like in his character. And all of us are called to that, not just leaders, not just Peter. He wrote so that people, ordinary Christian people who named the name of Jesus would become like Jesus. Lord, may that be our aspiration. May we pursue that with all that we have. And Lord, by your grace, we ask you to continue to work in our circumstances, exposing our sin, granting us hearts that are willing to see it and to see it clearly and not become defensive, but rather look to get right with you for your glory and for your praise and for your honor. And Lord, I pray for anyone here who did not know the Lord Jesus when he or she came in, that right now your spirit is drawing them to yourself. Move upon their heart, Lord, such that they see what they did not see. They see themselves as sinners. They see Jesus as the Savior, and they're embracing him and the message of the gospel in this moment. Lord, we love you because you have first loved us. And we thank you for the change project that you have initiated and that's ongoing in our lives. And thank you for the security that what you have begun, you will finish in us. 
We pray all of this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.